asking questions is the best way to get people thinking. If, in fact, if I'm going to give you, you may, I'm maybe spoiling the punchline of the, of the podcast here. If you ask me, what's the one thing, if you had to give a piece of advice to a manager or a leader, um, and that is lead with questions, is that the, I think this is the, the opposite of the charismatic manager, the, the Mike Tyson quotes and all those sorts of things, is to actually say, have you ever thought about? Or when you think about the way we do things, what do you think we can do better? Inviting to harness all those brains in the organization, uh, that's the amazing thing. You have 30 people, 50 people, 1,000 people. Use those brains. That's the, that's the key leadership and management move in my mind. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion. Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high-performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is a former RAND senior analyst turned CEO of Agency Agile, two times Inc. 500 award winner and the author of the recently released book, Unmanaged. He holds a bachelor's in industrial engineering and computer science at Northern Illinois University and an MBA with honors in entrepreneurship and finance from the USC Marshall School of Business. He's a speaker, writer, and educator who graces the stage of industry events such as Ad Age, DigiDay, and Advertising Week. Having held numerous managerial and leadership roles in companies such as RAN, Sapient, Global Gaming League, and Modulant, he has seen what it takes to make or break a project, and more importantly, the team delivering them. I have the pleasure to introduce to you a successful startup entrepreneur, agile transformation consultant, think tank management scientist, and someone who is passionate, passionate in creating more positive and collaborative workplace cultures. Jack Skills. Jack, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Craig. I'm going to have you do all my introductions in the future. That was really nice. And the, the, the accent, the uh, south of the equator accent, absolutely adds to it as well. So thank you. Nice to be here. <laughs> I'm more than happy to make uh, make a living based on one of the introductions around the world or someone's going to fly <laughs> there <you> me go. <laughs> there. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so you're currently there on the West Coast of America. I'm curious though, where did you grow up and what was the big, big dream as a child? Oh, great question. Yeah. Um, I grew up in the Midwest, uh, a, a small university town. My parents were college professors. Uh, called DeKalb, Illinois, and actually that's where I end up getting my undergrad degree. Um, and the the thing I wanted to be, I think that my parents said said this idea that the fusion of two PhDs, the gene pools from two PhDs, would create something uh, magnificent. You know, um, I I myself, I think I took the lead off that. I wanted to be a, um, I don't think I knew what it meant, by the way. Um, I wanted to be a Renaissance man. As I wanted to, which you know, essentially means it was the Renaissance man was the sort of last time in history that someone could really singularly possess a grasp of all the known, known knowledge, if you will, right? In other words, I, I understand calculus and I understand how cotton is made, whatever, all those things. And I, I, was, I was amazed and entranced by books and the fact that uh, a book, I could, I could have someone very smart tell me about a topic. And so I was a big reader when I was a kid. And with the idea somehow it would pay off for me. Mm. So were you more of a leader or follower through your formative years? Oh, wow. I was like a, 
I was like, I sat on the bench for most of my formative years. I mean, quite seriously, I tried to play basketball. I was horrible at it. End up being the manager rather than the player. And um, I was sort of uh, really, really smart and really, really awkward. And and so um, I I don't know that I had either of them. I I sort of felt that I was on a singular journey. Uh, it wasn't a fun one particularly, but mm. it was a very singular journey of uh, living in a slightly different world than other people growing up. That's an amazing question, by the way. No one's ever asked me that. So very cool. So you speak about living in a slightly different world. Um, can you explain to our listeners, you know, what that was, what that kind of different world was for you and why you found it so kind of a little bit awkward to kind of fit in uh, into kind of what everyone else was doing or the way everyone else was thinking? Oh, this is great. This is a great journey, by the way. I've got to compliment you. I've done a half dozen or so uh, since the book release uh, podcasts and and these are great questions. So, um, you know, I think the, I didn't understand the world. Uh, and literally I would, I was looking at what everyone was doing and maybe I was just not well socialized or something. My parents were nerd, geeky, you know, counter so antisocial types. And I looked at what everyone did and I thought, why are you doing that? What is it? And things that people would say, I'd say, yeah, but is that really true? And sort of grew up just sort of being a skeptic of of what everyone thought was happening, right? And I didn't know the answer, but I just felt like they're way too confident thinking that they know the answer. And that sort of shaped me. And and you know, as it turns out, by the way, um, I was I got hired to Rand Corporation, the think tank, when I was getting my MBA. And this, these two ideas connect. Don't worry. Um, and uh, they a summer internship. Hey, fit, show us how to be a consultancy. I'd built a c consultancy before. And um, and they asked me to stay. And I'm, I'm an MBA, which is like sort of like, you know, janitor in a building filled with PhDs kind of thing, right? And and they um, it took me a year or so to understand. And finally, this really cool PhD dude, Dick New is his name, Richard New. Richard pulled me aside and said, you ask the questions. Okay? That's why you're here. Okay, it's so rare to find someone who asks why or, and is it? Is, he crystallized it by saying, "Is that so? Is that really true?" He said, "Because almost always, what someone is saying, it's not really true. It's a partial truth, and you're going to learn." There's a key. I actually mentioned this in the book. You're going to learn by learning what's not known not by what's known, right? That's growth. That's the growth move is asking yourself, what am I not seeing? What are we not seeing, et cetera? So, wow, that's a deep answer, but uh, there we go. Yeah, I think uh, I like I like kind of where this is going with here. I'm, you know, we hear a lot in the world right now where people are saying, look, you need to be a charismatic leader. You need to be a... Uh, confident leader, you need to be a strategic leader, you need to be an empathetic leader. And in some ways, it's really confusing because they're like, oh, you need to go this direction, this direction, and this direction. But we all need bits of those, you know, at, at the right time and right place, we need different types of leadership and, and the ability to develop those over time and not something you can pick up in an MBA or a university degree or by reading one book. A lot of them come through your experiences and the knowledge you pick up along the way. And yes, it helps to read stuff or listen to podcasts like this where you can pick up ideas and different ways of doing things. And so I really like the way that, you know, they picked up early there that you are thinking in a different way and that you're asking questions and, you know, is this actually the way forward? You know, is it that simple? And even to have the people at Rand who would, you know, kind of question what is the truth. I think that's a phenomenal way to approach things, especially so early in a career. Um, so what a great grounding you had. It was completely accidental. But yeah, thank you. No, it was, it was yeah, it was a very, a very strange uh, uh, thing. And, and, and again, being the one who, you know, it, it's a very, I think that's one of the things is, I, I was, as you're mentioning this, one of the great leaders that I knew who was running a 120-person agency, and by the way, it's amazing 
they're now 1,200 people agency. They've grown tremendously. But he had a philosophy, and he told it among his many brilliant philosophies. I talk about him in the book. His name is Ben. And Ben said, I never wanted to be like other organizations because I always felt like they were pretty miserable organizations. And so any time that I had a decision to make, I would say, what would a normal organization do? And I'm going to do the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. And in doing that, several wonderful things happened, one of which was he ended up with eight managers running a 120-person organization. Okay, That's a crazy cool ratio. Okay, To be able to do that, eight managers for 120 people means that you've done a lot of self-empowerment. And that, that, to me, that's the leadership of sort of saying, I'm not going to say managing is the solution. I want you guys to figure out a solution. And managing is the last resort to that, right? Um, is there another way to do this? And, and causing everyone else to think, yes, but do we have to do it that way, to ask that, that question. So is that then great leadership, right? Like great leadership will remove the the need for so much managing and allow a lot more self-management to occur. Yeah, I believe so. I believe that we, you know, there's a whole, I, I go into this in the book in, in section one because I do a little bit on the history of managing and the like. I think it's important that people realize our attitudes about managing and leadership and the like largely come from the industrial era. You know, the 1860s to 1930s was this tremendous growth in the idea of worker and manager. In fact, the word manager was not, the use of the word manager before 1910 primarily meant to handle cattle, okay, to handle livestock, okay? So it's not necessarily a positive statement to say you you are managing people, right? And in fact, a lot of the attitudes then were workers were essentially like cattle. They're, they're just commodities and the like. And the it came out of a military command and control belief that, you know, just like foot soldiers, right? And we see this, of course, they're very modern parallels to the, the the horror of those sorts of things these days. But somewhere in there, we lost the idea that how great humanity is, right? And and people are so incredibly smart and capable. And yeah, I love it when a manager says, well, I, I have to solve that problem for the team. And I think, do you know how complex of problems people are already solving. I mean, even just arranging your your Saturday weekend or, or organizing a party for Friday night is a very, very complex task. And people don't hire managers to do it. For, well, some do, I guess, if you're really rich or whatever. But I mean, the, the average folks like us, we say, fine, we're going to figure it out. And as we have a planning session or whatever, make lists, we're ridiculously capable. And the idea that managers have to do the thinking for people is one of the biggest mistakes that we make. Mm. So rather than thinking, is it more questioning that, that managers need to focus on? So the job of the manager essentially is to get the worker, if you will, the worker or the maker thinking, right? Mm. And uh, and you sort of hit on it there is that asking questions is the best way to get people thinking. If in fact, if I'm going to give you, you may, I'm maybe spoiling the punchline of the, of the podcast here. If you ask me, What's the one thing, if you had to give a piece of advice to a manager or a leader, um, and that is lead with questions, is that the, I think this is the the opposite of the charismatic manager, the, the Mike Tyson quotes and all those sorts of things is to actually say, have you ever thought about, or when you think about the way we do things, what do you think we can do better? Inviting to harness all those brains in the organization um, that's the amazing thing. You have 30 people, 50 people, a thousand people. Use those brains. That's the that's the key leadership and management move in my mind. Mm. Talking about the word manage or manager managing, uh, made me just kind of think that we're seeing a revolution of the dictionary happening at the moment, Warren. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that words and even... I suppose what we describe as different types of things warp and evolve over time, depending on who has uh, the most people's ear at that one time, right? So it could be a, a person who's written a great book and it's their slant on what a word means. Um, 
And, and we're seeing, you know, definitions change quite regularly as well in the dictionary in regards to what does something actually mean, you know? The, uh, and so the world has a way of evolving for better or for worse. Sometimes it goes back to where it started. Um, but it's interesting how we can, as human beings, be able to manipulate the the meaning of something. And it kind of makes me think in a way around the, our ability to is to be able to change or influence the way or, or the meaning we place on work and what is work and how do we lead work. For you, what do you think is the biggest shift that is happening in the way that we view leadership and management at present? Already kind of noting the kind of shift in what managing used to be to what to where it is now. Wow, that's a great question. I, I think that the the thing that I see increasingly is the I, I th actually what I see. What I see is an opportunity, probably, and I'm not sure if the shift is going there. Clearly, I'm trying to propel people there. I think the opportunity is to just to separate this idea of managerial function from superior performance. The, one of the many legacies of our industrial heritage is the, the hierarchy, the pyramid, okay? The idea that there's a, a zero-sum game, winner-take-all sort of promotion model in place. And this, this creates a a huge range of actually quite negative behaviors in the workplace as people compete to, to grab those managerial spots and a really negative outcome, which is, and the research shows this as well, of course, we've seen this in the 200 plus companies we've worked with as well, that when I promote that deep specialist, the person who's best at things in that department into the managerial role, the performance of the department drops. Man. So in it, in the old industrial model, was believed, well, that would be someone who's great to drive the department or whatever. But in reality, in today's complex, multi-manager, matrixed workplaces, making someone a manager is actually a great way to just kill their overall productivity. And usually they're not that good at managers either because of some other factors as well. So I, th I think the, the, the real opportunity here is for us to, and this is a human thing, it's an individual thing. We, we as people are drawn to, and it's, it's changing over the generations as well, we're drawn to these marks of success, okay? I got promoted to manager, then to director, whatever, those sorts of things, as, as social proof of our goodness or economic worthiness or something like that. And, and I think that's a thing that I, I hope we can figure out a way to look at differently. And I, I do see it in some of the, the the younger generations now where where craft, craft skill rather than title is seems to be more important. And in in a way the 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 thinking of work and especially these days with AI and everything is this the stuff that's gonna be left for us humans to do is that artisanal, that craft, the the dirty, complex, figure it out kind of work. And, um, and I think we, I think we need to go back to that. And I don't have a, I don't have a succinct way to say it, but I think that's the opportunity and the challenge with both. Yeah. It's in some ways I kind of, when we, when we look at kind of the way that we move up through organizations, you know, for many, it's based on money. I can get more money if I move up and they're in not in all cases but in many cases once you move into a managerial position leadership position you earn more money and so if we're wanting to move up in regards to how we can support our family or or be able to have extra things in life then we're you know we're, we're in uh, inclined to be drawn towards you know where we can drive more money so when we think about from a model of a company point of view, how can we shift that to more of a circular type uh, model where it it doesn't mean, you know, just because you're a manager doesn't mean you earn more than someone else. You know, you can be a specialist and achieve, you know, the economic benefits. Um, but also thinking about how can we look at 
how do we support people's desires in a way or their natural inclination to to look for what is success in their life you know what is an achievement and so we might see some companies doing this but many are still in that very traditional organizational structure set up when it comes to both the economic benefits and also being i suppose recognized for success yeah i think there's a maybe maybe you found my better answer okay i hope i hope that we can get past that because there's you know back to that idea of yes but it is it so does it need to be so in other words is it really true that the only way we should be rewarding people for doing a better job with more money is by promoting them okay is we don't need to connect those two things mm. There's a great book called, by the way, I'd refer uh, anyone who's interested in this topic called Abolishing Performance Reviews. Read that one after you've read mine, of course. But the uh, the, the challenge here is that if I think about it, the, the real job of the manager is to actually make people as good as they have, have become, right? Okay? That is, I'm the best in my department. I get promoted to manager. What's my job? My job is to see if I can get everyone else across that same line that I just crossed in terms of skill and capability. But a hierarchy doesn't really create those incentives to do that. And by, by turning it upside down, and we've done this with some clients, by turning it upside down and saying, your job when you get your next increase in pay, you move to a new status, but it really means that you move down in the hierarchy. That is, you are supporting more people. You have more people on top of you. That it is your job to enable them to be successful and to grow and the like. And that's how you're measured. You're measured by how many of those people also get to that, cross that same line that you did. That's the real, and that's, if you think about it, that's a manager growing a knowledge work organization, right? Not managing, not supervising like their cattle, but we're turning junior and mids into seniors and principals and all that kind of thing. They were really, we're changing it. If I, if I take that model, it starts looking more like a layer cake, not a pyramid, right? So I'm saying, well, if I had a, bond, a, a scattering of people in that department and various skills level, you know, three years from now, I can turn them all into amazing senior level talent. That's a win. I, that became an amazing department, right? Um, that's the, and and that that isn't the outcome you get when you're doing a a hierarchy because even though the manager got promoted, there's still someone vying for number two, which is the replacement for that manager position, and they're fighting everyone else, right? And it so there's really a rethinking of this idea of the value of hierarchy, which is very very overrated. Yeah, should be the value of human uh, versus. Uh, <laughs> of performance versus the value of hierarchy um, yeah when we look at you know obviously how people grow and evolve through organizations on their careers uh for you you know what was your introduction to the workforce i i started out very 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 you know back in the states i'm <laughs> talking like i'm sitting in australia right now that's so funny um in the States, back when I was growing up, uh, the most common thing for you to do as a kid, especially a boy at age 12 or 13, is to get a paper newspaper delivery route, right? And, and I think most of those come through the mail these days and the like, or someone driving by in a car. But there was a bicycle and a bag over your shoulder and, and riding around even in the in the winter, you'd find it, you know, because it's just better to... Uh, I rode bikes in the snow, right? Because walking... Oh, hang on a second. Something just popped up on my screen. Sorry. I rode bikes in the snow because walking was miserable. Right. So I, I started with that and I think I learned I learned then that to get up early in the morning and just get going. Still do. I still get up at sunrise and or, or even earlier during the winter time. Um and and just start throwing those papers, get make things happen. Yeah, I love that, which is good. And so moving, I mean, for you, what was your trajectory into moving into a managerial role for the first time? 
you know, I I had um, I eventually found my way into undergrad and you know industrial engineering, computer science, and I was a robotics programmer back before they called it robotics. Factory automation is what they called it, and I was I was pretty sharp at it. Um, and the what happened is I started. Uh, I know and I've told this story a lot of times, so I know a lot of people follow this trajectory as well. I st- my um, in my department, my my manager was sort of absent and the like, and people wanted status reports. So I would, and this just this is almost some madman like. And my my manager had a secretary back then, and she was a uh, you know she had a um, the little uh, pad where she'd you know transcribe what you said and then type it up and all that kind of things. It's stenographer pad. And um, I would just uh, lay down on the sofa outside of his office and I'd transcribe, I'd just recite what the status report was for all the projects and she'd type it up. And we just started sending this out. I thought it was kind of fun to just do it. And and my, my manager was like, these are great status reports. Why don't you become a project manager? I thought, ooh, oh, I hate project managers. All they do is get in the way. They said, no, hold on. It it pays forty percent more, okay, and um, and you don't have to work weekends to get projects done because you're just the project manager. I was like, I was in Southern California. I thought, wow, I can go to the beach on the weekends instead of coming in and working. And they're like, sure, forty percent more pay, of course. So I took a job that had the name manager in it, and despite having despising all project managers I knew and the like, and um, had a great couple of years doing that. Mm. And so what was your biggest learning in going into your managerial roles that I suppose allowed you to really kind of think about what does it actually mean to be a manager? I just have to, you know, I, you may want to cut this out. I didn't know, but I have to compliment you on the question. So very, very good. Um, you can leave it in, whatever you want to do. But um, look, I, I think the, the fact that I had a disdain for project managers and had never really seen a project manager that I felt added value, hmm. I decided that I would just try and stay out of the way of everyone. And I, and literally, I mean, my routine looked something like, eventually I, I adopted an early agile technique in like 1984, which is um, you know, that idea of a sprint. You know, let's, what, what are we going to do for the next two weeks? Okay, go do it. Let me know if you need anything. And they'll check in and we'll see what you did after two weeks kind of thing. But I would just, I would stop by and see, how you doing? Need anything? First thing in the morning, you know, I was always there early. And I said, let me know. And uh, I'd do status for, I didn't, I didn't do a lot. And my teams were great. They loved it. Um, I would jump in and help if they needed help, of course. But I was, I was very, I called myself a lazy project manager, um, but I was winning commendations for how well my projects were going all the time. And I thought this was, this was a great little confidence game, right? You know, they, they call me a project manager. I don't do much of what project managers do. My teams do a great job and I keep on getting promotions and, and bigger projects to work on and all that kind of thing. So the, the lesson I learned very, and you can see it in the book time, title, Unmanaged. And it was as accidental. I wasn't trying to become a great management philosopher or something, which I am kind of now trying to be at least. But I, I just was like, I, I don't, I didn't like being treated that way. I didn't like someone coming by and telling me what I needed to do. I can figure it out and get it done. And and so that was a real epiphany for me was that we we overmanage absolutely. And that was very early. That's 1984. So you can. You can wind backwards, figure out how old I am, and also note that that's, you know, that's whatever, 40-something years ago. Yeah, and I think that's such an important thing to learn because especially when people go into managerial roles for the first time, in many cases, they either try and do too much because they need to be seen to be trying to live up to the new pay packet or their title. Um, or they feel like they need to know everything because they think everyone thinks they should know everything as the project manager, or they go kind of another way where they freeze and they really struggle because they're not, they're unsure what to do and they kind of crawl up on a ball in a way and, and really struggle. But then you, you find those little pockets in the middle who are able to really figure it out. And, but they're rare, they're, they're rare in a way, especially in your first 
one or two managerial roles, you, most people learn some massive lessons or some of them don't learn at all. Yeah, no, I, I think you hit on a couple things and uh, several things went through my head while you're saying that. Um, one, if, if if your listeners want a great example, now I I know the the American version of this, the um, uh, the Office, okay, the the TV sitcom, and I know there's also the uh, the British the British version, which you guys probably see more of over there. In the American version, at least, I've seen the the, the UK version as well. But the in the American version, it has a very simple plot structure that repeats over and over, and it it, it should be, it's a great mental model for what you just said because you, what you pointed out is a lot of times people feel like because I am a manager, I need to be acting managerial. Yeah? And in the sit in the sitcom The Office, the basic plot model is business is running fine, Michael comes in and decides he needs to do something managerial, screws everything up, okay? Eventually, the organization spits him out, and the, the classic scene in the American version is at the end of the episode, he's standing out in the parking lot trying to figure out what happened at the end of the day, right? And essentially, the the futility of acting managerial is, is emphasized there. I, I have another, one of my great learnings about acting managerial, just sort of a funny story, um, when I was I was working in Del Monte, uh, the corn processing plant, making canned corn. This was a college uh, summertime job, and the like. And I'd, I'd I'd somehow found my way into a managerial role again. I don't know. And um, I, I was managing two departments at different ends of the building. And my boss, a wonderful guy, Chuck Hanby, Chuck would see me walking back and forth, and he knew what I was doing, but no one else. I was checking out the two departments, making sure everything was running fine. He said, Jack, carry something with you, okay? So when you go by, so they, they can see you're actually doing something managerial and, and carry some, try to carry something different every time. Well, lo and behold, like a day later, um, a, a big steam pipe, these eight-inch steam pipes, starts leaking really bad. It's a very, very dangerous situation. A jet of steam can you know, tear through people's skin and everything They take an eye out. And so I run down to the tool room and I grabbed the massive pipe wrench, about almost as tall as I am, like this massive pipe wrench. And I'm sort of jogging back across the plant, okay, to get to over where the steam pipe is. And Chuck sees me and goes, something smaller next time. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I can always remember that. Always make sure you carry um, something under your arm so it makes it look like you're actually doing something. Uh, but I love I love the big wrench, so that's always a bit of fun. Um for you, you've worked for different companies, but you've also been a successful entrepreneur as, entrepreneur as well. When you look at those companies that you worked in rather than, rather than kind of led in a way that you grew yourself, what's, what is kind of the big shift that you're foreseeing in the next sort of five years that companies uh, are going to need to to make or really really consider if they want to remain relevant, um, you know, beyond twenty thirty. Yeah, you know, I think the the sort of the the pat answer these days is the the explosion in automation, aka AI, the uh, you know the generative learning and and all the chatbots and all that kind of stuff that that's that's going to be a big disintermediator um probably a faster one than computers were which is sort of my generation where computers changed the way businesses operated um i think part of the if i go to another piece of that and this is this is in the book a little bit i did excise some of it because i didn't want the book to be too long but i mentioned this earlier in a way, you can think of if you think of the the world as a like a set of circles, the world of work, right? And and the outside of the circles are where it's either we're doing stuff that's very original, we haven't done it before. It's very very complex, or it's very innovative, or it's very messy, messy real world, like you know, trying to get blood samples from tribes in Uganda or something like that. You know, all these sorts of things. These very where we really need a human in there to actually get it to work and this you know rewind 25 years ago and uh factories had a lot of automation in them but putting things in a carton 
in you know, like a, a wine case carton kind of thing was something that robots couldn't do yet. So you'd have all this automation and then a bunch of bottles and human beings would be stuffing the things in the carton because the robots were good. That, that of course, that's, those days are gone, right? Um, and so this there's this creeping wave of automation. And if you think about the things, as we, if you're doing something repetitive, truly repetitive, we do it over and over, a process, a way of thinking, uh, creating the TPS reports, whatever, that kind of thing, then that's something that's, that's going to be subsumed. Automation is going to, going to scramble and take that over. The, the space that will still be open for at least for many decades to come is that space of sort of true human innovation, of artistry, of creativity, of deep problem solving, complex problem solving, theorizing, that kind of thing. And, and then the messy real world. We're going to have the messy real world for a long time to come. And, and the idea of how do, how do we get automation to interface with the rest of the world is, will still be a human problem for a long time. So I think you need to look at your company through that lens. Like, what business am I in? And like we work with a lot of advertising and marketing agencies, a lot of them in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and you know, one of the things is media, right? This media advertising and the like is one of those things that's a rep highly repetitive function. It's getting increasingly automated. It's already crazy automated. But if you start dropping AI on top of that, then it just, you know, the idea of a company that just does media um, really gets down to sort of zero, winner take all. Someone's going to have the package or a couple packages and that's it, right? Um, so you need to pay attention, go find that high ground, that high human ground. If we take a, <laughs> a step back in memory lane, it may be a good one, may not be. Uh, back to when you're in high school and kind of the what they taught you at high school, what would you remove and what would you replace it with as we move forward and look to how we're going to, how humans are going to need to interact in the workforce uh, in the future? Oh yeah, I'm I'm gonna steal. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna subvert your question just a little bit, but I think it's it's gonna work because I'm gonna use something else you said. You um, you said you, you'll learn how to be a leader from getting an MBA. Okay, and I, I will say, and you don't learn how to become a manager from getting an MBA. There's nothing. In fact, there's a great book by a noted researcher pundit Henry Mintzberg, um, from years ago. Just it really never got traction. It said managers, not MBAs was the name of the book, right? And he's a great researcher, great thinker. And what he pointed out is that there's really nothing in most curriculums or maybe a class or two that, that really starts giving you awareness of what that, what that very human component of this is and how do I motivate someone and how do I, I mean, you study motivation, but you don't learn how, right? You understand what motivation is, extrinsic, intrinsic, et cetera. And, and what he did is he set out with, a, uh, with his university, which I think is McGill University, and a couple companies and started to try and craft a managerial curriculum. And it's in the back of the book, and it's really, really interesting. Okay? It starts with the self. It starts with understanding yourself and what your motivations are. And then it goes on to creating presence. You know, all these things are this sort of new age ideas, right? How to have, how to maintain presence in a conversation, how to have a conversation, how to, how to create empowered conversations, how to handle, you know, all these things that are, they're far more rooted in like Buddhist ideology and some of the new great thinking on how to, how to engage like um, Edgar Schein, the great guy, humble inquiry and stuff like that. The, uh, the real managerial curriculum doesn't exist in the real world. Okay? It's just not out there. And in part, that's what I wrote the book around was like, well, if I'm going to tell them how they're doing it, wrong, I better start telling them how to do it right. And the funny thing is it's not easy. I mean, it's a big internal journey to become a great manager. I believe it's a big internal journey to become a great leader as well, to become a an authentic leader is really about, uh, and you, you, if you're in the leadership business, not me, I, I think it's probably more about understanding yourself and the leader that you can be than, than trying to be like a Jack Welch or a Steve Jobs or something like that. Yeah. To, yeah. Really understanding yourself is so important. And we don't, 
Yeah, I think back to when I was at high school, we definitely didn't really delve in, didn't delve at <laughs> no, all into no, who no, we no, were no. as a human being. <laughs> it was, it was all about ticking the boxes and getting the right grades so you could get into university. It was pretty much how I found a lot of it. Some of it was great, and there were there were some amazing teachers along the way that made it real life for me. Like I think that was always the biggest thing for me at school was like, and and I probably got into a few di- heated discussions with teachers along the way. I was like how can you make this practical to my world going forward? What does this actually mean to me? And a lot of them struggled with those questions and I probably ended up in detention one or two times just purely based on my (laughs) curiosity more than being probably what was thought of as being a smart aleck at the time. It wasn't. It was just purely based on, hey, help me out here. I'm not seeing the purpose of this. Why are we, what are we getting out of this? Um, rather Rather than probably what was, the considered response was just trust the process in a way. <laughs> I was like, no, I don't, I don't feel the process is working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I do. I, I do remember that from, from high school. Definitely. I, I think that the, the go back to your original question, I think it wasn't who you were inside or anything, but it was sort of a, what you were. I mean, cause that's, you know, mm. in high school, they're all the categories of people and and that and essentially that's seems to be a thing that we're drawn to at that age especially is is what that person is with some idea of where they're going and you know are they desirability based on um, meaningless attributes kind of thing yeah i'm gonna create a little bit of a shift here sure in a world where we we desire less but crave more okay and we don't want to be labeled but we love being in a label what are the what as human beings what are what is the kind of the the most challenging uh, I, I suppose as a collective, what is the the biggest challenge we're facing at the at the moment as a human race that is holding us back from you know having more effective companies, being more effective relationships, doing building better teams, um, being able to perform better as ourselves. Yeah, and this may be seem like just a uh, a completely right angle, but I, one great question. Second is, I, I think that the idea of uh, the categorization is a trap and that the, the labeling is a trap. And uh, I do spend a lot of time talking about some of the key biases we have as human beings, and most of them make the, worst, the workplace much worse. Mm-hmm. Our, our ability um, to quickly categorize and, and essentially discriminate, create value value statements around them like um that you know craig craig seems a lot like me and therefore in my brain he's he's a pretty good person uh, versus someone who doesn't seem a lot like me in some way and there obviously can't be as good of a person right because i'm a great person right that that sort of um intrinsic bias model that we have is is pretty crazy and when it gets and i mean it came from there's some reasons for it they're they're you know they go back 50,000, 100, 200,000 years and the like, it served us then. I think now what we see is that we see media and our, our, our sort of cultural dialogue revolving around these even finer distinctions of, of who someone is and isn't and all that kind of thing and, and the what's correct to say and what's correct to do and, and, and that kind of thing. And it's really, I characterize it as this. It is a loss of tolerance, and and t- tolerance is a very very important idea. Tolerance is a lot of people. I had someone say to me the other day, "I'm very tolerant, except in some cases I just can't." Blah blah blah, and I said, "Okay, well that's not tolerant. Okay, tolerance tolerance doesn't count when it's easy. Tolerance doesn't count when it's my in group. Okay, tolerance is the ability to actually not have those biases or let them change your decision making." when it's hard to do, right? <laughs> and and I, I think we've always had limits on tolerance, right? And we could say, well, we we, we try to like 
people who are incarcerated, you know, we say, that's fine. Maybe they just made a mistake and we're going to try and treat them as regular citizens when they come out and the like. But we've always had a limit on there, there's There's some people that we incarcerate who we go, they're never coming back, right? So we, we do, we do, and that's okay. But I think that the, that forgivable, that, that the breadth of the forgiveness zone is shrunk dramatically these days with polarized politics. I, I know you guys have some of that going on down there. Certainly here in the States, we have it, but it just, the, the idea that it's okay. We're such, we're such, um, faithful monkeys at copying each other on things. The idea that it's okay to be so partisan and so divided just leads to more partisanship and more division. There you go. Good. Uh, I'll be Hunter. It, uh, this whole thing around, we don't want to be labeled, but we like to be labeled as this. People still feel like they need to belong. And I'm wondering how we can shift this space to help people feel like they belong without having to be part of a grouping or or feel like they need to be labeled as something um, to just be more comfortable in being who they are. I, I find this fascinating that people still really, really struggle to just be themselves. They, they just want to fit in. We have this deep down desire and craving to want to fit in all the time. I'm wondering if there's a different way we can approach this. You know, I, I think that there's a, you know, this, this sort of gets into diverse, the diversity discussion, right? And the, you know, the, the thing that I, I look, I, I think diversity is great. I think we need to applaud you know, everything, whatever neurodiversity and, and, and every, every form of diversity. I think the the idea that is a good thing for those who who accept it, and unfortunately, not not all accept it. But the 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 real way to break down those barriers and the like is is through action. And in in the workplace, the the challenge of sort of intrinsic bias in behaviors is quite large. By the way, I, I'm, I mentioned a great study about this in um, inside the book uh, Deloitte. Deloitte did a study along with some university researchers of, of performance appraisals. Okay. And the single most common factor in performance appraisal was how many values the appraiser and appraisee had in common. Okay. In other words, I like good footwear or we like the same kind of coffee, right? That was the single most, and it was, I think it was like 47% of the factor. And, and it was only the third factor that had to do with actual performance, right? And so when you think about this, it creates this massive bias engine where I just don't believe that Craig is that good at that. And so I'm not going to give Craig a chance to prove me wrong. And in fact, not giving Craig a chance to prove me wrong just reinforces my belief that Craig will never be capable of it. And by the way, Craig actually starts believing that as well, right? And And so there's a this idea of how do we, how do we just all play together? How do we get more inclusive? How do we have less smaller conversations and more bigger conversations, more broader? How do we encourage people to ask questions and learn? Those are all inclusion practices. And I think that's the, I know in the workplace, that's my area that I work in the workplace. That's huge. I, I don't know. There's a larger societal problem. I don't know how to solve that one because we are, we are careening in a direction, I believe. So, yeah. All right. So I'm playing with a bit of a concept at the moment. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts around it. I feel at times when people talk about inclusion and creating a sense of belonging that they focus too much on harmony. And I feel that harmony is a handbrake to high performance. And to me, it's unity that we need to be focused on. What What is that unifies us together? Not what is makes us kind of live in harmony in a way. I feel that it's a real handbrake to to success and performance of a team and even to happiness in a way. Because if we're in harmony, that means we're not being ourselves, is my feeling on this. So, so I'm playing with this concept demo. I'm curious to get your thoughts around, should we be focusing on harmony or unity? I, so I... I you know, those are those are both big words. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my spin on it. Okay, so 
harmony implies that someone knows what the tune is supposed to be, right? If you will, I'm just go a little bit musical on this, right? In other words, we all need to be seeing this the same way, right? Um, and that that's intrinsically impossible, okay? So you get compliance and defiance in that model, right? In other words, uh, someone says, I'll stop thinking and just do what you say. Or someone says, I'll, I'll stop thinking and I'll just do what you tell me, right? Okay, and a, it is a handbrake for organizational performance, absolutely. The, the, the interesting thing is, and this is one of the main things we teach in, in Agency Agile in terms of how to get creative and innovation teams uh, running better, is there's another thing that goes on inside of us, which is if we, in fact, can take time and listen and learn how everyone is thinking about a topic, and you can do that through the way they ask questions. We're really good, by the way, as humans, of hearing someone's question and reading what's behind the question, right? As we learn more and more perspectives on the topic, we all grow together in our understanding, but it's still multiple perspectives. And you can get to something, and I, I would need another word, because I, I wouldn't call that harmony. I, 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 mean, I don't know that it's unity either, but it's the ability to act together in a fairly coordinated manner, right? And um, you know, the, the the equivalent would be just sort of a um, a very talented sports team that's never played together, okay? Individuals are very talented, and in a team that's actually taken time to stop and think about the way they're playing and talking about their different perspectives and all that kind of thing, um, and they become this amazing team because they, they have mutual adaptation, they have they have deep understanding of each other's models and the like, and it's very, very doable. And by the way, the Japanese do a great job of this uh, in their industrial management techniques. There's a technique called BA, BA, that I go into in in the book, and it's uh, used in leadership. It's also used in management, but it's really let's not do anything until everyone really says they understand it, and they mean it when they say that. But is that? potentially also a handbrake to being agile and being able to work at speed when it's required? It's actually a necessary precursor for it. Um, they, they proved this actually in um, the work done by Taichi Ono and Toyota Production System back in the 1950s, which still has the Japanese car manufacturers as the top quality manufacturers in the world was literally um, the idea, of, they call it the um, Andon, A-N-D-O-N. It was a cord that stretched across the factory, uh, the assembly line, and any assembly line worker, if they saw something going wrong, could pull on that cord and stop production. And production would not st start again until they had actually solved the problem. And so this idea that we handed the understanding of what correct assembly looked like for this complex vehicle to a bunch of, and by the way, there were fifth to seventh grade educated factory workers, so you can find that in the research, that that we gave these to people who had, had 30 years before been treated like cattle inside of the building, right? That we were saying, you're smart enough to figure this out. Let us know when it's going right and let us know when it's going wrong. Um, it's absolutely essential for, for high quality work, for adaptive work, it's all that kind of thing. You know, think about it. If we need to adapt, who knows about it first? Managers? No. The adaptation is seen way earlier at the worker level, at the maker level. They need the thing that things are working as well as they could and the like. And so the, the the transferring of that control of understanding and the like is so important to do. Mm, love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. I, I think we the world is becoming People are trying to move too fast, and they're not they're not thinking about the unintended consequences of what's happening, or they're they're prepared to like, let's move quick and we'll fix it along the way, or or we're happy with um, it being eighty percent okay. <laughs> yeah, so those are those are really costly attitudes. I mean, we see this in our clients as well. Is that the one of the one of the things a lot of managers don't understand is that. The idea of a project overage rate, in other words, like we thought it would take a, a thousand hours, but it really took 1400 hours. All right, well, we took an extra 400 hours. What ends up happening is those extra 400 hours have to come from somewhere. And you were going, those people that you need were going to go work on something else. 
And so now that project just got delayed by the fact that this project had those problems as well. It's it's very costly to solve problems late in the process and and way more effective to actually at least understand what needs to be solved well at the beginning. And it does, it's really, really hard. I had a client who said, he said, I have no idea why we can't spend three hours to really make sure everyone understands the project at the start. Yet, when the project becomes this rolling dumpster fire, we're willing to pull everyone for three days to try and fix it, right? And he said, why don't we just avoid that in the first place? But it's just not in human nature in some ways, too. Mm. So you've recently released the book Unmanaged. Uh, I'm curious now to ask you, how can a individual shift to an unmanaged mindset? And then secondly, after that, I'd love you to answer how can an organization uh, adopt a unmanaged approach? The, so the book, I, the book probably would have been 130, um, I'm sorry, uh, 1300 pages had I not uh, winnowed out a lot of stuff. But one of, the, one of the big things I did keep is I wanted to make sure it's a practitioner's guide as well. And a lot of the managers I know who have read it and given me feedback say it's great. I'm, I'm marking up the pages. These are techniques I wanted to use, all that kind of thing. The book ends with a, a discussion of some of the things I mentioned here today, um, how to build presence, the use of questions, all those sorts of things, the the internal journey for the manager as the, as the individual practitioner. The larger journey, if, if, as a leader, Generally, what we see, and again, this is the bias of the space that we work in and the like, and, and the clients that we've, you know, the couple hundred clients we've worked with. In general, if you want to change, and this we're talking about changing the culture of management, right? Okay, Because as, as you mentioned earlier, Craig, people become a manager and then they say, I'm just going to act like other managers are, so at least I won't stand out, right? Okay. Um, and, and since I don't know what to do, I'll just copy what they're doing and the like. And so changing a culture, a set of behaviors around management is, is not something you can just be a leader and say, we actually have a client, a very large pharma company um, that put up posters on the wall and said, you know, a Shepherd Ferry empowerment poster said, we are all empowered. Right? And I'm like, what did that change? It changed nothing. No one knows how to be all empowered or anything like that, right? Making people empowered is a, is a complex topic, just like you and I have been talking about, and and empowering people and getting them to actually step into empowerment and and take the lead and the like. That's a lot of work, so you you need a third party, whether it's us or someone else. And the other main piece to this is, you almost hit on it earlier too. We as humans change our ideas of things and the meaning of the words. As we were, as we go through a very specific process, and that process is of understanding why the words don't fit well now, and why the words mean, need to mean something different. I call this cultural linguistic narratives. In other words, why do we keep on doing it this way, and we shouldn't be doing it that way? And when we get the whole organization to understand the need for change, then change can happen. But change by diktat, by coming in saying you must do it this way. It never works. It never does anything. So um, it, the change program is the hardest part. Definitely the hardest part. So Jack's not coming into your organization to dictate that you changed. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's the gonna, light bulb. You've got, work you, with you've, you. got, <laughs> you've got to want to change first. <laughs> we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time. I'm such a creature of habit. That's uh, oh, I, I just started playing pickleball. Um, yeah, yeah. So I just started doing that, and you know, to to start it out, I um, I thought I, I'm going to have so many questions um, that I didn't even pick, didn't even buy a paddle or anything like that, and I just hired a coach right away. I said, I, I'm just, I played tennis for 40 years, so I'm going to ask you a million questions. I just want you to just be my sounding board and, and that kind of thing. It was great. And it was, uh, um, I think the, literally I thought I, I need a coach. I don't want to, I'm like, I'm too old to try and solve this all on my own. And, 
I don't have time to read. I, I'd really want someone to be my, my Sherpa, if you will, help me get to the heights. Nice. What is the one question that you would love to solve? What is it that we need to do to really find a spot of of harmony, if you will? I've my whole career and still pursuing is how do I how do I get the workplace to be one of this sort of some of the things you and I've talked about, Craig? You know the 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 use the word unity, right? I mean the the, the having a workplace where everyone feels like they belong and 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 are entitled and empowered and be engaged and 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 also share the ownership and the success and and the challenges and I, you know that's 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 what I'm trying to solve. That's what we work on and and uh, so the book is about too. Just made me think about something here. Just a quick side note: It'd be sure, fascinating yeah. to create a company where every single person is paid exactly the same amount, and so as the company grows, everyone grows equally. That'd be interesting. Anyway. Different topic, oh, yeah, yeah. different day. <laughs> it's sort of a, it's called the collective, actually, and there there are examples of these out there. Um, they're actually quite flat organizations, um, but there are. Um, it happens mostly in um, agriculture, right? Is that people get literally just farmers' collectives and stuff like that as uh, one of the greatest examples of it. Yeah. For you, what is an inspiring great leader, and who is a great example of this? I think a the, the most inspiring great leader is one who can convince me or anyone that that is part of their workplace that they have it within them that they and in in a way it's it's a I I did have a great manager I worked for for a while I didn't realize how great he was uh, but he's still a good friend Tom Winfrey is his name and. Tom always had the attitude, and it was this this loving, fatherly sort of thing um, that was sort of like when problems came up, he'd talk about them for a bit, and they'd say, "I'm sure you guys are going to, yeah, I'm sure you guys are going to figure this out." And and it was it was like a coach saying, "Go get them," you know, and that kind of thing. And I think that was to me that was that that raw belief that he had the right people in the game, and um, and that. And it wasn't even, it was very democratic. I mean, it was like, you guys, sort, we're a team of 12 people and you guys sort this out. What do we need to do? Okay, let me know what you need. And I, I think that that sort of lazy servant manager thing is the ultimate uh, version of leadership, the one that, that says, uh, I, I don't need to be the winner in this, okay? I'm, I'm just the, you know, I'm the facilitator of a bunch of winners, that kind of thing. It's been a great conversation so far today. A lot of fun. Uh, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Well, you know, obviously I'm going to answer the book, Unmanaged, uh, uh, Mastering the Magic of Creating Empowered and Happy Organizations. It's on Amazon, even even down, down under as well. Um, you can reach out to me at uh, on LinkedIn, Jack Skeels. It's jack at linkedin.com slash jack and also uh, through agencyagile.com, um, reach out to me and my team if you'd like to talk about organizational solutions as well. Great. We'll pop those links into the show notes so everyone can find them. Jack, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, learning about your, your upbringing where you had kind of the two different PhDs in the household and, and that the thought about you being a blender, those two, but you um, sort of carving your own niche and your own way forward in this world is, is quite, has uh, is, is been quite fun to listen to and really interesting to see where you're taking things. Uh, the way that you're sh kind of looking at the world from different viewpoints and asking the question, you know, what is truth or is this the truth uh, along the way and being that real curious person to go, you know, is there a better way? Is there another way? And to bring out this great concept of unmanaged, you know, I think it has, it's a great way to look at how you can be more effective and empowering and leading people so that they can do things they really love doing and feel fulfilled because they're completing projects and, and not just doing a task. They are 
being able to problem solve and find different ways to do it. They're having a, a greater contribution than just doing the work. And so I really love what you're doing and thank you very much for a wonderful conversation today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Wow. Well, thank you. And uh, what it, I agree entirely. It's just really, really great questions. And and he sort of bent my mind a little bit, which is great. I'll be thinking about this afterwards as well. Look forward to uh, actually listening to it again as well. So thank you very much for having me on, Craig. Appreciate it. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders Movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong.